This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. First, let me send a thank you to Bill Shepard, who listens in from Thetford, Vermont. At my request, he sent me some beautiful pictures of his home and the gorgeous countryside. Boy, those fall colors are really starting to show. I really appreciate the shot you took, Bill. Okay, on with tonight's show. And our first presentation, George Burns and his good friend Jack Benny recount with sadness that they're not recognized in the area of, well, for George, his singing, and for Jack, the playing of his violin. I think the show's a hoot, but it got me to thinking, in Jack Penny's case mostly, just how good was he on that violin? We do know that he was one of the top stars of radio, television, and stage in a career that spanned over 50 years. A master of comic timing, Benny changed the nature of the weekly comedy show on radio, and his likable skinflint stage persona delighted audiences in the U.S. and around the world. But his violin playing... As a young man, Benjamin had no desire to enter his father's haberdashery business, but he had a natural talent for music, which his parents encouraged by purchasing a small violin for him and paying for expensive lessons. Considered something of a prodigy around his hometown, he played as a member of a musical group at various town and social functions, so he had to be pretty good. At age 15, Benjamin was offered a job at Waukegan's Barrison Theater playing violin in the pit for vaudeville and stage shows. During World War I, Benny enlisted in the Navy and soon became a performer in camp shows at the Great Lakes Naval Station. In one early performance, Benny's violin act bombed so badly he started to tell jokes. Well, he became an instant hit with enlisted men and joined the Great Lakes Review, which toured most major cities in the Midwest. Following his discharge, Benny returned to vaudeville as a single act, Ben K. Benny, Fiddle Phonology. He now considered himself a comedian, and the violin became merely a prop. It was also at this time that he changed his name to Jack Benny, so that audiences wouldn't confuse him with another vaudevillian, Ben Burney. It was in radio, however, that Benny was to achieve his greatest success. It was Benny who discovered that the humor had to emerge from the character, and that the key to longevity on radio was not novelty, but familiarity. He garnered his audience's sympathy by playing the stooge to his regular gang of characters with whom he shared the spotlight. Each week, they poked fun at his cheapness, his age, or his self-delusions. And one of the familiar trademarks of the Benny character was that he never admitted to being over 39. Benny knew, however, that by letting his cast get the most of the laughs, his character's became not only the butt of the joke, but the center of attention as well. The violin will come into play in tonight's episode of Burns and Allen. Um, another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George? Sure. Pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last... 
drop. And that drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. With our special guest tonight, Jack Benny, yours truly, Toby Reed, Mel Blank, Gail Gordon, Meredith Wilson and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and Bill Goodwin. For America's Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for America's everyday coffee-drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. Life is a funny thing. Upon some men it bestows fame, fortune, and success, yet cruelly withholds from them the thing they long for most of all. In the city of Beverly Hills, California, live two such men, Jack Benny and George Burns. Each apparently successful, yet nursing in his heart a secret, unfulfilled ambition. What is Jack Benny's ambition? His dream? Listen. Gee, when is the world going to recognize me for what I really am? A concert violinist. <laughs> Mr. Benny, Mr. Benny, please. The violin lesson is over. Now may I have my money? Uh, Professor LeBlanc, uh, tell me something honestly. Uh, what do you think of my playing? Now be frank. You want the truth? Yes. First, give me the money for the lesson. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm tired of being the comedian, the clown, the pagliacci. Please, Monsieur Benny, I must go. Get the money out. Sure, it's brought me fame and riches, but when you're not happy, what good is gold? It's turned a lead in my pocket. Monsieur Benny, please, get the lead out. <laughs> If I could only be a concert. <laughs> and just a few blocks from this scene of frustration, we find the other man, George Burns. What is his secret ambition? Listen. Boom, 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 down in the garden. Honey, oh, mine, I love you so. Love me like a flower, don't. Gee, Gracie, if only the world would recognize my singing voice. Well, it does, George. Everyone recognizes your singing voice. Really? Well, sure. It's after they recognize it that the trouble starts. <laughs> if for some reason my voice just doesn't seem to sell. Oh, lots of people think it does. Think it sells? Oh, Sal! <laughs> oh, what fools they are. You have a beautiful voice. You really think so? Oh, yes. You sound like a nightingale flew down your throat and built a nest there. <laughs> but I never get a chance. Yeah, I know, dear. Just like Jack Benny with his violin. Yeah. Look at that, that party we went to the other night with Jack. When I started to sing, what happened? They tried to drown you out. Yeah. Only it's worse than it sounds. They tried to drown you out in the swimming pool. 
Well, thank goodness Jack started to play about that time. His violin was really a life saver. Oh, yes, when they threw that in the pool, it gave you both something to hang on to. <laughs> Why won't people take our music seriously? Well, George, they won't accept Jack as a violinist because they think of him as a great comedian. And they won't accept you as a singer because they think of you as a great... Uh, whatever it is you are. <laughs> a pickle salesman. It's so unfair, Sell George. Sell rhubarb on the side. There were you and Jack... Be careful, little horseradish. Now, George. <laughs> there were you and Jack loaded with musical talent and all the crowd wanted to hear were those gypsy entertainers. Well, those gypsies were good. Not one bit better than you. I'll bet if you and Jack had been disguised as gypsies, the crowd would have... George! That's it! Huh? Why don't you and Jack disguise yourselves as gypsies and put on a concert? Now, wait a Oh, minute. it's a great idea. If people don't know that you're George Burns and Jack Betty, they might like you. Thanks. <laughs> now, Jack could be a gypsy violinist, and you could be a gypsy troubadour. When a gypsy makes his violin cry. Oh, gypsy. When you sing, you not only make the violin cry, you make the whole orchestra ball. <laughs> Maybe you've got something with the gypsy idea. Oh, sure. Let's go talk to Jack about it. People go for gypsies because they're romantic vagabonds. They've been roaming the earth for hundreds of years. Do you think Jack and I can put it over? Absolutely. If I ever saw two men who look like they've been roaming the earth for hundreds of years, it's you and Jack. <laughs> Come on, let's go over and talk to Jack. idea, Jack. I can't do it, Gracie. When I achieve recognition as a violin player, I'll do it on one thing and one thing alone. Talent. <laughs> but, Jack, huh? Jack, it's a great idea. I'm sorry, George. I will not deceive my public by disguising myself as a ridiculous gypsy. <laughs> Jack, Jack, you can make a barrel of money. Money? <laughs> yes. If we're gypsies? Yes. I thought so. Anyway, it's not a cheat, you know. You know, I do have some gypsy blood in my veins. Oh, really, Jack? Yeah, of course. I only have a drop or two. You know. Oh. How much of it is gypsy? Well, the drop or two is gypsy. I have more. <laughs> My father, my father ran a gypsy tea room back in Waukegan. <laughs> Sam Benny's Romany Rendezvous and Delicatessen. <laughs> my mother used to go around at the tables and read the Rye Crisps. <laughs> yes, I remember. Uh, yes. Say, Jack, you and George can be gypsy brothers. 
Oh, do we have to be brothers? Well, brother acts are so popular in the theater. There's the uh, the Marx brothers and the Ritz brothers and the Mayo brothers. The Mayo brothers are in the theater? Well, they must be. People always talk about going to the Mayo brothers for an opening. <laughs> A Blasfogel handles their knives. Oh. You know, you know, I'm glad you had this idea, Gracie. It sounds exciting, romantic. The Mysterious Gypsy Brothers. <laughs> we'll rent the biggest hall in town and give a concert. <laughs> yes, it'll be great, Jack. What if we do have to risk a little money to, you know, to put into it? Money? Yes. We risk it? Yes. I was afraid of that. Oh, wait a minute. I've got an idea. We'll get someone else to put up the money, huh? Someone else? Yeah. You mean, we won't risk anything? Yeah, not a cent. Oh, we're in again. Yeah. Now, I've brought you boys home to try on these gypsy costumes. Here, you spread this dark makeup on your faces while I finish curling your hair. Gracie, is this necessary? Of course, Jack. All gypsies have curly hair. Well, okay. There. Now, Jack, your hair is done. Put it back on. <laughs> Gee, it feels good. Still warm. And now, George, I'll put a few waves in your hair, and then we'll put on the earrings. Earrings? earrings? Well, certainly all gypsies wear earrings. Now, hold still, Jack. Hey, Gracie, these look like the gold earrings I gave Mary for Christmas. They are. She insisted you wear them. Well, how sweet. She wants to see how you look with green ears. <laughs> look, these earrings happen to be solid gold. Some appreciation, I guess. She doesn't even keep them clean. They're all sticky. Well, Mary says that was on there when you gave them to her. It's from the Cracker Jacks. Well, I'll be careful to wash off her birthday present before I give it to her. Now, George, you put these other earrings on and uh, this sash. Okay. And, Jack, here are some beads to go around your neck. And now we'll put this scarf around your head. There. I feel like Carmen Miranda. Now, you look wonderful. Come in. Hi, Gracie. Hello, Bill. I just dropped by to say hello and... and, and... Who are the two old babes? <laughs> oh, fine. Well, they're gypsies, Bill. Oh, oh, gypsy fortune tellers? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, read my palm, honey. Look, look, I'm Jack Benny. <laughs> Quit kidding. You're a gypsy fortune teller. Now, read my palm. I tell you, I, I, I can't read your palm. I'm Jack Benny. Come on, honey. Read my palm and I'll give you 50 cents. (laughs) 
I see a tall, dark woman. <laughs> she looks like Davy Marie. <laughs> Hand over my money, Anthem. Look, Bill. This is really Jack Benny, and I'm George. We're going to give a gypsy concert. Oh. With that sad gypsy, gypsy music. Let's show him, Jack. Okay. Are you... Are you... Are you holding anything back? No. <laughs> oh, Chichornia. Ochisrasnia. I held that back 15 years. Uh, Isn't that sad? Sad, it's miserable. (laughs) You know, Gracie, I think it would look flashy. If I had some gold rings on my fingers when I play, I've given Mary a couple of beautiful ones. See if you can borrow them. Oh, that will look flashy. Green fingers to match your ears. I'll be right back. Uh, Bill, Jack and I will be a sensation if we can just get some publicity. Well, I know a newspaper reporter. Uh, I'll send him over for a story. Oh, thanks, Bill. And we'll give you a pair of complimentary tickets to our concert, right in the front row. Well, Jack, uh, I'd rather sit in the balcony. But, Bill, you can bring your girl. You see, if you sit in the front row, she can appreciate my technique. Well, if we sit in the balcony, she can appreciate mine. <laughs> Just send the report. Yeah, so long, Gypsies. How do you do? I'm a reporter from the news. I'd like to get a story about those two gypsies who are going to give a concert. Oh, wonderful. What would you like to know? Well, uh, I understand they're brothers. Yes, both boys. <laughs> nice arrangement. <laughs> gypsies are supposed to be mystics. Do these boys have second sight? Yes, they both wear glasses. Uh, yes. Uh, can you tell me something about their background? Well, it was, uh, it was very romantic. Uh, to begin with, they're gypsy kings because they were born... Uh, when they were born, they each weighed 20 pounds. You mean... King size. I should have <laughs> Now, uh, what are their names? Uh, their names? Yes. Uh, what are some gypsy names? Well, there's Misha and Sasha. Oh, well, these are Georgia and Jacksha. Are you sure these boys aren't just plain Americans? Oh, no, no. They're straight from Gypsy Land. They're real gyps. Hey, you're not kidding. So long, lady. Gee, it feels good to get out of these gypsy costumes. You know, George, if we can just... Come in. <clears throat> Howdy, little man. Oh, hello, Mr. Judson. Jack, this is Mr. Judson from Texas. How do you do? Mr. Judson, this is Jack Benny. Jack Benny? Why, say, 
Ain't you the world's greatest radio comedian, stage star, and movie actor? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it sure is an honor to shake your hand, Mr. Benny. You're a right famous celebrity. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, what part of Texas you from? <laughs> Dallas? Houston? No, I'm from Waukegan. Uh, Waukegan. Uh, Jack, uh, Jack, uh, Mr. Judson is an oil millionaire. Uh And he may want to put up some uh, $5,000 to back our country. Well, now, I'd be right glad to put up $5,000 if Mr. Benny was from Texas, but he says he's from Waukegan? Yes, uh, Waukegan, Texas. No, I, I don't recollect ever hearing of that town. Waukegan, Texas? Well, uh, you see, they might make it the capital, you know. You don't say. Yes, and the next governor will probably be my father, Sam Houston Benny. <laughs> well, now, is that a fact? And after he served a term as governor of Texas, he may be elected president of the United States. Oh, well, now, I- I'd sure hate to see him step down to a less important job. <laughs> Mr. Judson, I've got a TL for you. The people who run this world don't come from Texas. Yeah, and look what a mess they got it in. <laughs> well, Mr. Judson, do I get the 5000 Well, Now, that depends. Uh, what are you going to do in the concert, Mr. Benny? Uh, play the violin. I have my instrument with me, if you'd care to hear a bit of technique. Oh, I, I I'd admire to. <laughs> Scrape away. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Uh, that's you get the money. Good. Yeah. Yeah, on one condition. you got to promise not to tell nobody you're from Texas. Now, when do I get the 5000 Oh, I'd give it to you now, but I ain't got no small bills on me. Mm. This kid is loaded with oil wells, you know. Have you? Oh, hello, Mr. Judson. Howdy, little lady. Well, did you hear about the plans for the concert? Yeah, yeah, and I'm going to put $5,000 into it. My goodness, that much? Oh, I can afford it, little lady. I made a pile of money from drilling. Oh, you're a dentist, too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I like your sense of humor, ma'am. Bill, we called you back because our concert is all set and we want you to be master ceremonies. Uh, yes, Bill. Where do you think we should give the concert? The uh, Hollywood Bowl? Well, uh, I would definitely give it in the open air. <laughs> Well, uh, show us how you'd handle the MC job, will you, Bill? All right, Jack. Uh, how's this? Uh... <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hollywood Bowl. Tonight you have a real treat in store. I like that. You are about to receive the thrill of a lifetime. Good, good. Now, in a moment, these curtains will part and the ushers will pass among you with Maxwell House Coffee. Bill. Rich, delicious, mellow Maxwell House. So wonderful. Satisfying. Billy Boy. Good to the last drop. Dimples. Look. (laughs) 
That's all you're going to say? Oh, no, then I'll say oh. Maxwell House is the very best in coffee drinking pleasure, mm -hmm. yet it costs but a fraction of a penny more per cup than the cheapest coffee you can buy. Mm -hmm. Look, Bill, if, <laughs> if anything... If anything commercial is said at our concert, it'll be L-S-M-F-T. Well, okay, Jack, I'll say it. L-S-M-F-T. Let's sample Maxwell's fine taste. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, look, that's not what I meant, you see? It's more no, than a thousand... No, that's not what I meant, Bill. Wait a minute. More people... No, no, you see that? Wait a minute, Bill, wait a minute. ...than any wait, other wait, brand wait. of coffee in the world. Wait a minute! <laughs> Never mind, I'll get Don Wilson to announce us. Don Wilson. Okay. No one will come to your concert anyway. Oh, no? We'll fill a Hollywood Bowl. Well, maybe you're right. Don Wilson practically fills it alone. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, comedian. So long, troubadour. <laughs> well, George, let's line up the concert. Now, I think, I think you should open the show. No, Jack, you open the show. No, no, George, I insist you open the show. I want them to hear your voice first. Well, thank you. So you walk out on the stage all alone. Okay. And introduce me. Huh? And I'll play my first number, then I'll introduce you. Then I sing. No, you announce my second number. Look, how about giving me a crack at the third number? Thanks, George, but I'll announce my own third number. No Jack, I should be the star of the concert. Well, Mr. Judson sent over the $5,000... Have you got the concert lined up? No, Gracie, there seems to be a difference of opinion about who should be the star. Oh, but you boys are dear friends. George, tell Jack what you think of his violin playing. Well? Well, <laughs> Jack, tell George what you think of his singing. <laughs> How dare you think that kind of language in front of a lady? <laughs> Apologize. Me too. Oh, besides, you're mistaken about George. There's no greater singer in the world than Sugar Throat. Sugar Throat? Yes. Gracie, a seal makes the same noise and balances a ball on its nose. <laughs> you're wrong, Jack. George makes any song completely convincing. When he sings Old Folks at Home, he makes you think of your family. Far from the old folks. At home. <laughs> oh, brother. Ah, you thought of your family? <laughs> well, I'm going to be the star. After all, if it weren't for me, you couldn't even give this concert. Why not? Mr. Judson put up $5,000 because he thinks I stink, not you. <laughs> That's why not. <laughs> Come in. Mr. Benet, please. I followed you all the way over here. May I have the money for my lesson? I'll pay you if you tell these people that I'm a great artist. Uh, Gracie, mm -hmm. here's my French violin teacher who will tell you what a great artist I am. Bonjour. That's a lie. <laughs> In my opinion, Mr. Benet is another zimbalist. Well, then he should give up the violin and play the zimbal. <laughs> Gracie, surely the opinion of my French music teacher should settle the argument. Oh, uh -huh, you think so, huh? Well, you wait right here. <laughs> Have you got everything straight, Meredith? Yes, Gracie. I am a famous Italian music teacher, and George is my star pupil. Good. Now, let's go in there and show that Jack Benny up. Good afternoon, Ola. <laughs> huh? 
I want to speak uh, to Jack Ben. That's probably me. <laughs> uh, who are you? I'm uh, the bigger Italian music teach, Meredith W. Caruso. <laughs> oh, no. And I come to tell you that he's a great. Who's a great? He's a great. Who's a he's a? <laughs> he's a who's a. George? That's in my life. George Abernser. I'm a the teach. He's a the pupil. He's a what? What's the matter? You don't understand English? I'm a the teach. He's a the pupil. Well, part of that I go along with. Dropping in, Mr. Caruso. Goodbye. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I remember him. Say, during the war, weren't you the leader of the Armed Forces Radio Service Orchestra? Yeah, that's right. I thought so. You were Major Wilson. Yeah. I went in in 42 as a major and came out in 45 as a second lieutenant. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a record to be proud of. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, Mr. Ben, just... Oh, down, down, down. Well, it almost worked. Look, George, let's stop trying to rook each other. If this silly concert is going to break up our friendship, let's forget it. Maybe you're right, Jack. We'd probably make down fools of ourselves as gypsies anyway. Sure. Come on, I'll take you down to the corner and we'll get a cup of coffee. No, Jack. I'll buy you the coffee. That's what I meant. So long, <laughs> Well, Gracie, I, I didn't get to sing in Hollywood Bowl, but uh, I'm going to sing next week on Bing Crosby's Filco Show. Well, now there's a man who really appreciates your voice. Bing would rather listen to you than to any other singer. He would? Well, yes, Bing says that if Perry Como, Dick Haynes, and Frank Sinatra sang like you, he'd be completely happy. Good night, folks. Stay tuned for Philip Marlowe next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Time now for Philip Marlowe. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time a wrestler on the skids, a quick change artist in an alley, and a girl with an eye for angles all met destruction because a hundred thousand easy bucks... Caught him in a stranglehold which none of them wanted to break. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Stranglehold. men climb all over themselves for a purpose, sometimes for relaxation, and most times for no reason at all. Take professional wrestling. I watched in the ringside while two gargantuan hulks contorted their features in mock agony and bulged muscles at each other on a mat surrounded by tears of onlookers, 
screaming through their half-chewed popcorn. While the fans, as usual, howled for blood, booed the decision, hooted the departing contestants, and waited for the next comic act, laughingly called the main event. I went again over the letter I'd received two hours ago by messenger from one Manny Faber. It included a ringside ticket to L.A. Wrestling Arena, a check for $200, and the request that I catch as much as I could stomach of the match between John, better known as Peachy Keen, and Jules Caesar, the Emperor of Brooklyn. After which I was to come to Faber's house for instructions that involved John Keen plus a hundred thousand bucks of Manny Faber's money. So I watched a little closer as something that looked like a Sherman tank in a toga and leather sandals crowned with an olive wreath lumbered into the ring and sneered at the crowd. And since I'd long ago given up wrestling as a sport, I turned to the fan next to me wearing a derby on the bridge of his nose, waved a cloud of cigar smoke aside, and got some information. Oh, Caesar? Ah, you get your money's worth out of him, all right. Hey, what about this John Keane? How does he stack up? Ha <laughs> Peachy, you kidney's a bomb. Stinko, no show. Oh, oh, a blink out. <laughs> look, look, you're fixing the ring up for him now. Get this. <laughs> What's that, flowers? Yeah, yeah, peach blossoms. <laughs> They threw peach blossoms all over his corner. Eh, <laughs> hey, what stuff? Two years ago, the stuff was okay, but now it's tired, you know what I mean? Hey, he won't even put on a show, little old wrestler. He's still called a champ, isn't he? Champ! Him! <laughs> he won't even give you a laugh anymore. He's afraid of getting his pretty nose bent. What a bum. Pass, he's still climb up a nut. Here he comes, fucker. You whole pinky! <laughs> you bum! Profile, you ought to be a ribbon croak instead of a wrestler. Yeah. Hey, what's that on the back of his robe? Are you kidding? That's a big peach, of course. Embroidered in gold on black silk. How do you like... Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Hey, look, I hear them robes cost him a thousand bucks a piece. He thinks they make them hot stuff with the dame. Maybe they do. Who's the brunette in there talking with him? How ah, should I know? There's always something like that. Or I look right down. Will you make it talk so much? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, the feature event on tonight's program... Peachy started out of his corner. A good-looking brunette shouted something at him that stopped him cold. He turned to glare at her, and Caesar slapped a hank on him that put Peachy flat on his back for fall number one. Three minutes later, with his head in a gilligan, Peachy was well on his way to the mat again for fall number two, which was enough for me, so I got up to leave. The brunette, I noticed, was leaving, too. And at the end of the exit tunnel, we came out side by side. You got a match? Huh? Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you. It's a mess, isn't it, huh? What's a mess? <laughs> The way things are going inside there. Peachy ought to change his line of work, don't you think? Oh, what's it to you? A laugh so far. What's it to you? You said something to him that knocked him for a loop, baby. What was it? A personal matter. Oh, how personal? Oh, about like that. <clears throat> Thank you, and step down, Philip Marlowe. And you'd better step out, too, or I'll whistle for a John Don. <laughs> Nighty-night, nosey. So saying, she flashed a couple of daggers at me from her snapping black eyes, spun on four-and-a-half-inch red patent leather heel, and was gone. So I drove up to Hollywoodland in the house of 2000 Beachwood Drive, where I was to meet my client, Manny Faber. The house looked like a two-room cottage from the street, but it ran for three stories down the backside of the hill. And all I did was touch the bell when the door flew open. Hey, you're Marlo, am uh-huh. I right? 
Come on in, Marlowe. I'm Manny Faber, head of Faber Transcriptions Incorporated. Produce radio shows, you know. Yeah. So you saw him, eh? You saw that big, crooked, four-flushing, stupid, mat-pounding mastodon that calls himself Johnny Peach Keen, huh? Yeah, I saw him. Yeah. Oh, have a chair. Oh, thanks. Well, what do you think? You just summed it up. What's that got to do with your 100,000 bucks, Mr. Faber? You haven't seen the late editions? No. They're full of it. Peachy Keen is suing me for 100 Gs for slander. <laughs> How can you slander a guy like Peachy? It's impossible. I know that, and you know it. But does a court of law know it? No. In fact, they're going to make it stick. Now, well, how did it happen? I'll tell you. A very sweet guy named Frank Gaynor. Yeah, I know. I'm a sports commentator. Yes, yes. He's been doing five a week on my label and going big. But three days ago, what we've been expecting for months finally happened. Rest his soul. A weak ticker. And just like that, he dropped dead on the street. Heart failure. Yeah, I read about it. Well, Frank always kept five broadcasts ahead, see? Made tape recordings in his own little studio. So I've been running his last five shows as a final tribute to him. Well, what happened? Uh, yesterday, the whole 15 minutes of his broadcast was devoted to ripping apart John Peachy Keen. Here, listen. Uh, I've got the tape here on the machine. Mm. This is one part. A blight on the sports world. And furthermore, I have proof that Get John Peachy Keen has sold out to the highest bidder in small-time gambling circles in his last three matches. Now, I know for a fact that he has become so blatant in his underhanded dealings that even as dubious a business as professional wrestling cannot stand the street. And officials have threatened to bar him from the ring. Strong I can know beyond a doubt that John Peachy Keene has falsified medical reports to evade tough competition, and that he eventually... Yeah, it goes on like that, Marlowe. Some of it opinion, most of it fact. And it's the facts that my lawyers tell me I've got to find the proof for or be a dead duck. That's why I asked you to come up here. I... Oh, excuse me. This sure. is probably Ruth, Frank's wife. Nice show, people, one. Oh, hello, Ruth. Come in, honey. Hello, Manny. I haven't been able to find a thing yet. I can't imagine where Frank got his information. I... Oh, Ruth, uh, shake hands with Mr. Marlowe. He's the detective I told you about. Uh, Mrs. Gaynor, Marlowe. How do you do, Mr. Glad Marlowe? Glad to know you, Mrs. Gaynor. Manny, here's the key to Frank's private studio at 6122 Sunset. It might be a good place for Mr. Marlowe to start. Yes, all his files and equipment are there. Frank didn't like to work at home or at my plant on the strip. Wanted his own private setup. Uh, we looked there, but maybe we missed something. Okay, I'll see what I can find. Oh, by the way, do either of you happen to know a good-looking brunette connected in some way with Peachy? No, but he's quite a ladies' man, I understand. Why, Marlowe? That's just a hunch. I saw him talking to one at night, a fireball. May mean nothing. Well, I hope you'll be able to locate the proof of Frank's statements, Marlowe. We've got to find it for Frank. Uh, <clears throat> uh, also, it'll break my heart to pay a hundred grand to a no-good meat heaver named Peachy Keen. I promised Faber I'd keep in touch and left. I found Gaynor's little recording studio tucked into the second-floor corner of a small office building on Sunset. Unlocked the heavy soundproof door and went in. The room had a busy, cluttered look, as though Gaynor himself had just stepped out. A row of filing cabinets and a desk sat along one wall, and opposite them was the glassed-in booth with the tape recorders and microphone by which the solitary sportscaster had canned his radio programs. I dug through the files and found a folder labeled John Keene that held only a sketchy history of the wrestler. Some publicity pictures and a few clippings, one of which rated a long second look because it was topped by a picture of the same brunette I'd seen at the ringside. It was captioned, Carla Bennett reads for West Coast. I started to read the story when there was a sound at the door behind me and the lights went out. Don't move, mighty. I'll kill you on the spot if you do. Up against that window, you make a perfect target, you know. But don't try anything, kid. What do you want? More than I'm getting, it's what. I'm entitled to it, I am. The service is rendered, you might say. 
I can't help you, Busty. You've come to the wrong man. Oh, but not to the wrong place, huh, matey? So, first things first, like I always say. Turn around, matey. It's night. Oh! <laughs> right, he'll get me. Sleepy boy. <laughs> There's a limey showing up here to put this. Oh, <coughs> put the slug on me. A limey? Yeah. Who was it? Why'd he slug you? Good questions, Faber. Hey, does the name Carla Bennett ring any bells? Carla Bennett? Yeah. No, no, I oh. never heard of her. I. Huh? Oh, just a minute, Marlo. Here's Ruth. Huh? Marlo, I remember that name. Yeah. I'm sure Frank interviewed her once. Carla Bennett used to be Mrs. John Keene. Peachy's ex-wife? Yes, I'm positive. Why is she mixed up in this? I don't know. But Limey slugged me apparently took a newspaper clipping about it when he left. At least it's gone. Marlo, this Limey, was that all he was after? Yeah, he said he wanted more than he was getting. Hey, but look, Faber made this call. What do you want? To tell you that he'll be out checking on a few things himself. That's all. Oh. Well, by the way, Ruth, any idea where this Bennett Dane might be found? No, I haven't, Marlo. Oh. I think she was staying at some woman's hotel on Vermont Avenue when Frank interviewed her at that time. Vermont. But that was over a year ago. Maybe she's a lady of habit. I'll try it anyway. Thanks, Ruthie. There were three exclusively female hotels on Vermont. And the second one I called had a Carla Bennett registered. So I went out to my car and babied my aching head down Vermont to the Victoria Plaza Ladies Only Hotel. The lobby was done in ivory and pink with desk clerk to match. And the nameplate tagged as Mr. Seymour Pratt. I started over, but stopped when I spotted about an acre of peach-colored suede coat wrapped around John Peachy Keene himself, lumbering up the stairs at the back of the lobby. Mr. Pratt saw him at the same time and darted from behind the desk like an angry canary after a rhinoceros. Just a minute, you. This is the ladies' hotel. So what? I gotta see the one in 212. Not this way, you don't. Why, it's after midnight. If Miss Bennett wishes to come down to the lobby, that's her affair. But no men are allowed upstairs after 10 p.m. Okay, okay. How can I get in touch with her? Use the house phone, naturally. Over there in that booth. I'll go right back to the board and plug you in. I'll be with you in just a moment, sir. Ducky, I'll wait. A call for you, Miss Bennett. Good listening, huh? Now, see, here, you know perfectly well you're not supposed to come back to this desk. This is for employees only. What about eavesdropping? Is that for employees only, too? Oh, uh, why, how dare you Save it, Seymour. Me. The guy in the booth there is a professional wrestler. If he finds out you're listening in, he'll tear your arm off and beat you to death with it. Then let me take over here. Give me the earphones. Now, wait Come a minute. on, give it to me. Okay. Now, sit there like a good boy. Keep the key open and your trap shut. No surprise. Where are you now, John? In the lobby, in the phone booth. You better come down, Carla. No, no John, I'm tired. Will you call me tomorrow? No, wait a minute. Talk... What do you mean by that crack you made tonight when I was in the ring? Just what I said. I want a nice big slice of that hundred thousand you're getting from Manny Faber. Why, uh, you're crazy. What makes you think I'd give you one lousy penny? Uh, you will, gladly. You see, John, I know all about those visits you made to the Lyceum Theater. Bottle has come back to L.A., hasn't it, darling? Why, you sneaking... Oh, shut up. After the life you led me for four years, you big ape, I'm entitled to all I can get. And that'll be plenty. So I advise you to run right back now and tell your friend that I know all about your little scheme. And talk it over good, John. I'll be waiting to hear from you. All right. 
I'll do just that. And you're sure going to be sorry you stuck your nose into this one, Carla. Real interesting. Are you quite, quite finished now? Yes, and you were a big, big help, Mr. Pratt. Oh, there he goes. Peachy Swake told and all. So long, Seymour. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Stranglehold. Peachy Keen slammed out of the phone booth. He was burned to a crisp. He stomped out of the woman's hotel via the back door that opened onto the parking lot. And when I got there, it was already out of sight. I stopped in the shadows to figure out which way he'd gone, but skipped that as the back door opened again. This time, it was Carla Bennett. She ran across the lot, hopped into a new green convertible, and got as far as switching on her lights before still another character pranced into the headlight beams like a veteran ham making for upstage center. Miss Bennett! Hey, Miss Bennett, wait! I gotta talk to you! I couldn't tell where the first one came from. I only heard it. It brought the little man up on his toes and arched him like a drawn bow. I saw the flash of the second one. It came from the alley and crumpled it into a pile. A moment later, a mole roared, and I ran to where I could see with a pair of taillights twisting onto the side street. It was all the good it did me. I went back to the body of the little man as Carla Bennett climbed out of her car. She was white from shock, and in the headlights, her makeup was garish. It belonged on a clown. The back alley harlequinade was suddenly very grim. He, he was shot in his direct in front of me. Who's the little guy, Carla? I, I don't know. I never saw him before. You know my name? Yeah. We met at the wrestling arena early at night. You remember? Marlowe, private detective. Now, come on, Carla. Let's have it. What's his name? I don't know, I tell you. Okay. We better find out fast. Let's take a look at his wallet. No. It's none of my business. I'm getting out of here. Wait a minute. He wanted to talk to you pretty badly, baby. Very likely about a hundred grand. Huh? If I were you, I'd stick around. You've got awfully big ears, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. Better to hear phone conversations. What? This guy's an actor. He's got an equity card. Name is Seth Cameo. Mean anything? Not to me. Unless... Unless what? Unless he happens to work at the Lyceum Theater? As you said, Carla, Vaudeville's back in town, and that brings up another point you better... Hey, what's explain... going on out here anyway? I thought I heard oh. shots. You did, Pratt. They came from the alley oh, there. Oh, and... so it's you again. I might have... That man. That man there on the ground. Good heavens. Is, is he dead? Yeah, he's murdered. Oh, no. Help! Help me! Murder! Help! Me! Hey, jerk. I'm getting out of here. Not alone, you're not. I'm going with you. Listen, Big Ears, I can take care of myself. Will you beat it? That's not the point, sister. I still want to talk to you. Get in. I go out that way to the street, not too fast. All right. Since you're running things, where are we going? Lyceum Theater. On the way, you can tell me why your ex-husband Peachy's been hanging around there. I don't know why. Who's the friend he's been seeing? Was it Cameo? I don't know that either. Now, look, for Pete's sake, do I have to draw you a picture? A man was shot down right in front of you. Doesn't that convince you? You're bucking the same opposition, baby, and believe me, this is no time to hold out. Not in this league. I'm not. All right. Well, that stuff you overheard on the phone was pure bluff. I accidentally ran into John a couple of days ago near the stage door of the Lyceum. He, well, he acted funny like he was waiting for somebody and very nervous about it. You didn't see who it was? No. I waited until three girls and two men had come out one after another, but they were cagey. I couldn't tell which one John was waiting for. And then I heard about this slander suit of his, and I figured something was screwy. He took a swing in the dark tonight and connected, huh? Good and solid. When I told him on the phone to go back to his friend, I knew he'd be just stupid enough to do it, and that's why I came out so fast. I wanted to follow him and find out who else was involved before I got in too far. You're already in too far, baby. You got more nerve than good sense, even for a hundred grand. You don't believe me? Ask Cameo. There's a theater park here. We'll walk over. 
Look, tell me something, Big Ears. Suppose Seth Cameo did work here. What's it going to prove? All depends on what we find to go with it. He was killed to keep him from upsetting the apple cart. One way he could have done that would be to have proof of what Frank Gaynor said in his broadcast about Peachy. Sure, but fitting a vaudeville actor at the Lyceum into that slot doesn't make sense. No, but... Yeah, there it is. Cameo's placket. We were right. Yeah. Seth Cameo, the one-man all-star cast. See Lionel Barrymore, Betty Davis, Harry Drucker, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, and many others in East Glen played in a split-second changes by the world's most versatile one-man cast. Seth Cameo. Sure, he was a mimic. A guy like that would have dialects, lots of them. So? So maybe Seth Cameo was the boy who slugged me in Gaynor's studio. He was careful to turn out the light first, then he threw that limey jive at me to toss me off the track. And what's more, he... Uh-oh, we got company. Where? There's a little geezer over there. What are you doing there? Theater's closed. Last show's been over for hours. I know, you're the night watchman. That's right. Now you better move along, kids. No loitering around theater. Now, just a minute, Pop. This Seth Cameo, does he have a limey number in his act? Why don't you come back tomorrow and ask him? Well, that's tougher than you think, mister. How about it? Does he do a limey? Limey? Well, now, let's see. Cockney, English. No, I don't think so. Might have at one time, though. Been in the business for years. Good man, too. Best quick changer i ever seen. Mm. Has he got a scrapbook or something in his dressing room, do you know? Well, yeah, yes, he has. Got a box there with every bill he's ever played on in it. Most actors do. But the theater's all closed now, fella. Well, you've got a key, haven't you? Look, Pop, it's important. We've got to find out right away. Oh, no, I'm sorry, son. I can't do it. Look, I... it's real important. Take a good look. Very important. Ten bucks. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess it wouldn't do any harm if you just want to look. The old man slid the ten into his pocket like he wouldn't admit it even to himself. And let us in the stage door, down the stairs, and with his flashlight along the dark hallway to Seth Cameo's dressing room. He unlocked it, reached in, and turned on a tired little lamp. And pointed out a box on a trunk near the back. We picked our way over to it through a jumble of costumes that had been period pieces at the turn of the century. The box was lined with sentimental posters. And inside was a man's life. And stacks of programs and playbills. It began with a crisp current appearance and then ran back through all of Seth Cameo's dusty yesterdays. Didn't take long. Maybe five minutes. Here. This is it, Marlowe. Exactly what you're after. I see that. Parthenon Theater, Kansas City, September 1940. Seth Cameo of London in Piccadilly Circus, Majesty Navy Limehouse. Sure. This is it, baby. Seth Cameo and Limey were one and the same. And where does that get you? Yeah, it gives me an idea. It gives me one, too. Now, you found what you wanted. Now, let's put everything back like it was and get out of here. In a minute, Pop. I want to check something else. Now, look, sonny. This is dead against all rules. I'm getting jittery. Wait a minute. Two... Hold it. I heard something upstairs. Did you lock the outside door, Pop? Oh, come now, fella. Be a sport. That's an old stunt that oh. just won't work. That door's got a snap latch. Shut up. I heard it, too, that time. There is somebody up there. Huh? Yeah, you're right. Dad, blame it. I was afraid of something like this. Now, 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 look, you two. You stay right here and don't touch nothing till I get back. You hear? I'll go see what it was. Better switch off the lights, Carla. The brakes are going against us. What do you mean? Well, all this after-hours theater business can't be coincidence. Whether came in upstairs, there's trouble on his mind. Oh. You asked for a payoff, baby, and that's what you're going to get. Only the bank won't handle it. The morgue will. Hey, you. What you doing here? You the night watchman around here? Oh, Marlo, it's John. Yeah, pretty you keen. No pun intended. Oh. Oh, Take it easy. Here. Now you go on, get out. Don't lie to me, Grandpa. Car's parked across the street. Oh, you know Keep that. Keep quiet. Now where is she? Come on, I mean business. Now listen here. Don't you give me none of your sass, son. You just clear out there. Oh, oh my. Crazy old fool. You got the watchman. You better
Now, look, go up that way and cross the stage. Go to 2000 Beachwood. It's the one place Peachy won't go. Manny favors. And stay there till I call. You understand? Well, but... Never mind. Beat it, will you? Go on. Be careful, Big Ears. When Kyla moved off into the darkness, I saw at the other end of the hall the inquisitive beam from the flashlight poking into dark corners as Keen eased down the stairs. I got my gun into my hand, plastered my shoulders against the wall beside the open door and waited. I didn't have long to wait. I heard him stop in the hall outside and then the beam of the flashlight crept over the floor and up to the wall and slowly, carefully circled the door frame. Carla? I heard him move in closer. And the barrel of a snub-nosed revolver inched into the room. I know you're in here, Carla. I waited until I could see the big fist wrapped around the gun. And I brought my thirty-eight down. His gun flew to the floor and I swung again for his head. Why you? The rest are only blink and lunge for me. I'll kill you. Not tonight, Peachy. I may need it. I'll get my hands on you. That's your problem, big man. Fall down, will you? Go down and stay down. Well, you gotta chop that guy down like a tree. It had been short but vicious. And the one punch he'd landed had shaken me to my shoelaces. The wreckage of costumes, props, and a lifetime of old theater programs was scattered over the room like big moldy snowflakes in the crazy ankle-high glare. And the still burning flashlight. As I sagged down onto a trunk to catch my breath, I saw something that brought me right back to my feet again. An illustrated program from the King's Theater in Buffalo that gave me a new slant on the whole mess. It billed Seth Cameo as the man with a thousand voices, the perfect mimic. And the act that had followed him for a 30 week run was a girl whose face I knew well. I ran out of the theater into the nearest cab stand where I sent one driver to get the police over to the theater, and with another, I headed for Manny Faber's place on Beachwood, and what I was positive would be another murder. When I got to the front door, I knew there was no need to hurry. It was all over. Come on in, Marla. I've got news for you. It was Carla with a gun in her hand. On the floor in the corner, her face tight with pain, was Mrs. Ruth Gaynor glaring hate up at me like a wounded panther. There she is, Marla. I recognized her as soon as I saw her. She's the one Peachy was waiting for outside the Lyceum Theater. They've been working together all this time to frame that slander suit against Faber. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I didn't expect to find you like this. What happened? She knew I recognized her and pulled this gun on me. One she used on Seth Cameo, no doubt, huh? Uh-huh. She was going to use it on me, too. But I was way ahead of her. She's only in love with John Peachy Keene, but I was married to him for four years, and you don't live with a professional wrestler that long without picking up a few tricks. They call you the weaker sex. <laughs> What is it, Ruthie? Your elbow? Is it broken? Let me alone, you two-bit flatfoot. I'll call a doctor and get you fixed up. For one reason only, I don't even like to see a black widow spider suffer. More coffee, Miss Bennett? No, thank you, Mr. Faber. Well, I don't blame you. I've got no appetite either. You know, Marlowe, I always liked Ruth. And I thought she liked me. As long as you represented a buck, she did. And I've got to admit that she and the wrestler were clever, though. That stunt almost worked. She was clever. John Keene is 225 pounds of solid jerk. Yeah, it was all her idea. She was in love with Peachy, and when Frank died, she saw a great opportunity. Especially with that mimic being in town. Sure, Seth Cameo is an old friend of hers. She and Peachy wrote a highly slanderous script. She got Cameo to record it on Frank's machine, imitating Frank's delivery. Yes, and I broadcast it and stabbed myself in the back. Exactly. And we'd never found out any of this if a couple of other characters hadn't tried to cut in. First Cameo, who felt he'd been cheated when he learned the job he'd done was worth a hundred grand. 
We've had to shoot him to keep him quiet. Second little collar here. Oh, Marlo, please. With me, it was just good, healthy spite. Spite, huh? <laughs> What's stronger, baby, spite or dough? Well. See what I mean? Good night, Mr. Faber. Good night. Come on, Carla, let's go. We didn't go home directly. We went on our Beechwood Drive high into the Hollywood Hills. And parked where we could look out over the sparkling, sprawling city. And then we talked. About Carla, her life, relative values, the city below us, and the dark hills above. And then, as we watched the first faint glimmer of dawn rise in the east, we both realized something. Not original. Not very complex. And certainly not sophisticated, but very gratifying. In the final analysis, the best things in life, we both agreed, are still free. You know what I mean? Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Ted Von Elts, Charlotte Lawrence, Barney Phillips, Tony Barrett, Peter Leeds, and Junius Matthews. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... I didn't know it, but I was caught in a smokeout that led from a search for a lady in black, past murder at a highway inn, to gunfire in a crumbling warehouse, and all for a girl already dead in the morgue. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week when I'll offer up more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.